Hey there, welcome to Humanize Me. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. I'm glad you're here. However you got here, some of you are coming back. Some of you are coming because you heard me on Everyone's Agnostic with Cass and Bob. And that was a really fun interview to do with them. And it's, I, think it's, I think it's a link to it on my website if you're interested in it, barcampolo.org. Um, but I just, I loved being with them. And, 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 and it's funny, a number of people have said to me, like, you know what? You're better when you get interviewed on other people's podcasts than you are on your own. And while it kind of hurts my feelings, I think I kind of get it, um, is that I, I'm, when other people are asking the questions, I, it feels like it loosens me up. When I've got somebody, no matter how interesting they are, I'm always trying to think like, where am I trying to steer this conversation? And that's the problem. I got to stop steering conversations and just let them go. Let them, because they're a wonderful people and I just got to let them go. Sometimes I think that's why like the solo podcasts which a lot of people say, I like those better. And they're like, because when you're interviewing somebody, it's like you're trying to get them to say what you want said. At least when it's just you, you just say it. I'm, I mean, I'm going to get good people on here and I'm going to keep having conversations because I, I, I think that's really valuable. But I, I am going to do more of the solo shows too because as we go to the weekly format, I just, like, it's not like I can get Taylor Swift in here one week and, you know, James Spader the next week and, or anyone like that. It's hard to get good people. Although this week I got somebody really good. You're going to like this guy I'm talking to this week. And, and I'll get to that in just a second. So anyway, however you got here, I hope that you have a good time. And I hope that you stick around. Some of you have figured this out. But if you go to BartCampola.org, where some of you get this podcast, if you go there, there's this stuff about my counseling and coaching stuff, which some of you may have already figured out. But... What's happened is, is that increasingly there are people that reach out and say, Hey, I've got a thing to work through something I heard you talk about on the podcast or, or just something in my life. And you seem like somebody who's good at talking people through problems or good at helping people find direction or good at, at, at sort of processing, um, situations. And that's kind of been my thing my whole life. And so I'm like, yeah, I, but there got to be too many emails and too many phone calls. And so in the end, a friend of mine said, listen, if you're going to make yourself available like that, you're going to have to just, you know, make it regular, like take some clients, say to people like, yeah, I'll work with you. I'll work with you hard. And so we created a counseling and coaching part of the website that sort of says like, if, if you want to do it for like a few sessions or you want to, you have something that you want to work through. A lot of people are, I'm working with these days. It's like religious transition stuff or family stuff, marriage stuff, um, figuring out what comes next in their career stuff. So anyway, like that's there. If you want to find out about it, you should check it out. But I, I feel like it's almost my duty to let people know, always write to me like, like you don't need to be a counseling or a, a coaching client for me to care about what's going on in your life. But like sometimes what was happening was, is that people were like, we were getting into back and forth and I was spending lots of time researching for people. And I realized that I needed to kind of regularize it. So they didn't feel guilty asking for that much time. And so that I could actually afford to give it to them. And so, um, yeah, so that's there. All right. Enough of that. All right. So this conversation that we're going to get to is really fun. James Doty, uh, Dr. James Doty is a neurosurgeon at Stanford. Um, at the Stanford Hospital. He's a professor up there too. He runs the Center for Altruism and Compassion where he studies kind of the relationship between 
um, neuroplasticity and kindness and goodness in the world. He's this ultra cool guy. But this book of his that I, I got to know when he came to USC to give a book talk for this book, Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart. And it sounds all, all fancy, but it's really just a universal story. I mean, everybody likes this book. I mean, it's funny. I was looking at the blurbs on the front. It's like Glenn Beck and then Deepak Chopra and then like Philip Zimbardo, who ran the Stanford Prison Experiment all those years ago. And then the Dalai Lama. And these people actually read the book. You can tell they read it because of the way they write about it. And you're thinking, how is this book so connecting with so many different kinds of people? But it's a very universal story of a kid growing up in California who's in trouble. You know, whose whose dad's an alcoholic who's not around and is unemployed and they're in poverty. And the mom is depressed and she tries to commit suicide a few times. And the little brother is vulnerable and troubled. And, and here's Jim as a 12-year-old kid growing up in all of this. And he's angry. And he's been thrown out of school for punching a nun. And he's had all sorts of problems. He's on the verge of going down the tubes. And one day he walks in, one summer day, he walks into this magic shop. And the woman behind the counter is this big kind of older woman in a muumuu. And she... She looks at him and she says, hey. And for the first time in his life, he experiences what it's like when a truly loving and compassionate adult focuses all their attention on you. And she looks at him and she's like, what's your name? And he just feels this kind of sense of like, this person cares. And he says, I'm Jim. And she says, hey, do you like magic? And he says, yeah. And she says, do you know why it works? And he says, no. And she says, you know, it works because... Most of the people watching a magician, half of them are thinking about, they're worried about their past. They're worried about something that happened in the past. They're worried about this yesterday's thing or this fight they had with their wife or whatever. And he said, the other half are anxious about their futures, like what's going to happen next and all that stuff. She said, very few people are present in the moment. And because they're not paying attention, you can fool them. And he's kind of swept up and her, her son comes in who owns the magic shop and he shows them some tricks and, and, and they start talking. And then as he's getting ready to leave, she says, listen, I'm going to be here all summer for the next six weeks. If you want to come in every day for the next six weeks, I could teach you the real magic. I could teach you how to get anything you want in life. And he's just broken enough that he's open to that. And he comes back the next day and the next day. And she takes him in the back of the shop and she gives him lessons in what, as, as you're reading it, you realize like, oh, she's giving him lessons in mindfulness. She's giving him lessons in, in visualization techniques. She's teaching him how to relax his body and how to tame his thoughts and how to open his heart and clarify his intentions and know what he wants and figure out how to get there. And the rest of the book is kind of him describing how she teaches him this stuff, but then how he applies it in his life and how it changes. It literally changes his brain. He's a, he calls it neuroplasticity. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing story. Look, and you say, like, why are you telling me the whole story if you want me to read the book? And what about your, your, your conversation with him? We don't talk that much about the book. I mean, we talk about the implications of the book, but a, a, we spend a lot of time talking about how the brain works in our lives, in our daily lives, he's an interesting dude. Like, because for all his Zen this and Zen that, this is a guy who has not killed his ego. I mean, you'll hear it. Like, he's a great guy and he knows it. 
And I think it's just really interesting to, to talk to somebody who's very aware of himself being larger than life and yet trying to figure out how to help people in all different ways kind of actualize. He, he, in the end, he, he ends up kind of like this uber humanist and, uh, Hey, I'm not going to talk anymore about you. You're going to like this conversation, I think. I, I sure liked it. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I'll catch you on the backside. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. There you are. There I am, indeed. The good doctor. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I don't know if you remember meeting me at USC, but here I am. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I work there. I'm the humanist chaplain there, and I work with a bunch of students. Actually, a bunch of my students, oh, sure, I think, sure. they yeah, walked yeah, yeah. you back to your hotel after the, uh, yeah. which was fun for them. Yes, they protected me from getting assaulted by the vicious crime element at USC. Hey, if you talk to the wrong people, they'll tell you it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Exactly. Hey, so this is like the second time I tried to talk to you and you got called out into surgeries. Like, is this like, is that just your normal deal? Yes. In fact, hold on for one second. Yes. I'm on a podcast. Oh, thanks. Uh, yes. At, at any moment in your life, when you're hanging around Stanford, they could call you? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, generally we do have a call schedule, but, uh, you know, depending on what it is, there can be other emergencies or other things that demand your immediate attention if a patient's uh, deteriorating or something like that. How many times a week do you do a surgery? Uh, you know, I remember I travel a fair amount, but yeah. when I'm around, uh, it could be like last week. I did five surgeries. So. That's so weird. I always assumed it was sort of like heavyweight boxing matches where like you do one and then you wait like three weeks and you're getting amped up to do the next one. And it's this huge, but it's not like that. Well, uh, it is huge and you do get amped up, but this is your daily job, right? I mean, you have to be amped up every day. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I guess I thought that like the prep for each surgery, you figuring out what you're going to do when you get in there, I, I would have thought that takes weeks to get ready for that one surgery. And then like you rest and then you repeat, but like it's more constant than that. Yeah. I mean, if you're at a place where you do this all the time, you do it all the time. Yeah. So it's, and plus once you're trained or you have a certain amount of experience, it's always variations on a theme. Now there are other can be very complex problems that do need a degree of planning, but uh, patients come and see you and you schedule them for surgery. You know, it's not the same day or the next day. It's usually weeks away. So you've gone through the whole process of working out what you're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, so is this the 79,000th podcast you've had to do since you wrote this book? I've done a lot of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, you know, I've listened to a couple and I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think like, do I try to take some weird angle here or something like that? But, but, but I did when I, when I look back, I look back at the book and I thought like, oh my gosh, like everybody liked that book. You know, right. I, there's no supernaturalism in my game, but a lot of the people that were writing you blurbs and a lot of the people that seem to be all about you, they are supernatural oriented people. I mean, do you, do you feel like it, like your idea of sort of mindfulness and visualization stuff that that appeals equally well to people who believe in God and people who don't? 
Yeah, I think so. I think the uh, the real issue with these religious people, and there's actually a blurb on there from Amma that's not actually in the book because she turned it in too late. But, you know, I don't know if you know Amma, the hugging guru. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know her, but I have heard of her. And and, yeah. and, and, and after getting a hug from you, I, I feel like you've learned well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the interesting thing about that is that uh, both Amma and Trishri Ravi Shankar have never given a, given a blurb for a book ever in their entire, what, history or lives, right? I mean, they certainly don't need to do anything for me, but I think what it tells you is that when you connect authentically with somebody, it's very powerful. And, you know, obviously I'm not promos- promoting an atheist agenda, I'm promoting an agenda of simply being kind, open, authentic, and caring. And fundamentally, that uh, is at the core of every religion. And so if you profoundly connect to the core of their belief system and they recognize that, then they embrace you. And you don't need to memorize dogma or know anything other than my religion is kindness, period. And, you know, it's funny because I have had people go, you know, I've been studying uh, Tibet Buddhism for, you know, 30 years or Hinduism or whatever the ism is. And they go, and you seem to just walk up to these spiritual leaders and they embrace you. And I've never even met them. How's that possible? And I know all the stuff. And I, you know, the thing is, it's not the stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's the being present and being kind. And, uh, and these people can recognize that in an instant. And frankly, while they may be deeply connected to their religious practice on some level, they understand, though, the difference between walking the walk and talking the talk, right? Well, you know, you it, know it, it, it's true, but like it's interesting as. I come out of evangelical Christianity. I didn't see many evangelical Christians endorsing the book. And, and I think that one of the things is like the tradition that I come out of, that being present stuff is all good and well, but actually people are a little bit threatened sometimes when somebody seems to be present or connected or kind and they don't subscribe to the religion because they're like, right. you're not supposed to be able to be connected Unless, right. unless you're, unless you've got our brand. Well, you know, it's funny. It's interesting because I, I was with Glenn Beck uh, a while back and I actually introduced him to the Dalai Lama. I arranged a private meeting, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he wrote this note to me afterwards and he said, I was so surprised that you went so out of your way to be kind to me and embrace me. And I, that was so unexpected. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and he said he put it something in the context of not being a Christian or of my faith or something like this. So why would you possibly be a good person? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it is a phenomenon. And that's the weird thing is like, you know, you say like, I'm not carrying around a banner or I'm not crusading for atheism or for secularism or anything like that. But I think in a weird way, Whenever a person who isn't dogmatically ginned up is out there being compassionate and kind and doing good works, in a weird way, that is a kind of a silent challenge to the idea that without God, life is meaningless. I think you're exactly right, because it says to them that this person 
does not believe my, my dogma. He doesn't practice my faith, but he's as kind and good of a person as I am, or perhaps even better and more so. Yet he doesn't need any of that stuff to motivate him to do such things. Because, you know, unfortunately, Christianity is about the threat of you don't perform, buddy, you go to hell. And if you have no such uh, motivator as, you know, eternity in hell, why would you do shit? <laughs> I, I mean, I get that all the time. And I'm sort of, and the weird thing is, and they're sort of like, look, you know, you we all would rather do all these terrible things, but we're going to give them up so that we can go to heaven. And you right. think like, so heaven is like an eternal reality in which you don't get to do any of the things you would really like to do. Yeah. Right. Right. Like I, and, and what's funny is I always say to people, like if loving people and working for justice and being full of joy and gratitude for the wonders of life, if that isn't a good, if that isn't reason enough in, in a, in a finite short lifespan, how could it possibly carry you for eternity? Like either that's the best way of life meaning you would do it for five minutes if you had the chance, or it's not the best way of life. Right. But, you know, look, uh, having these discussions about religion is sort of pointless, right? Because the problem is, in some ways, uh, it's a brainwashing process. And once your brain has been washed, you don't hear other arguments. And so as much as on one level you and I can commiserate about what we believe the failings are perhaps in what various religions give humans. The reality is, though, that that a lot of people are wrapped up in this. And my view is that you don't have to, like you. We we hear about uh, what was it the three of the four horsemen of atheism, you know Dawkins, et cetera, right, right, right. Uh, uh, who have the sort of angry confront of atheism. And, you know, that's not my agenda. And and my agenda is not to tell people they're right or wrong. My view is I do what I do. And if people ask me why I do what I do, I tell them. And if it resonates with them and they say, wow, why would this person do this for me? And he doesn't have these other agendas that dictate those actions. Geez, that's wonderful. Versus, as an example, you see a lot of uh, missionaries, evangelical missionaries, you know, they go to an impoverished part of the world. And I'm not talking about impoverished in spirit necessarily. I'm talking about impoverished in, in, in just the resources necessary to survive. Yet what they do, it's a blackmail. It's, geez, you're starving right now. Well, before we're going to feed you, you have to show up at the tent and hear about Jesus Christ. And, well, if you're starving, of course you're going to sit in the tent and hear about Jesus Christ. But what should be done, in my personal view, is you go someplace, you never mentioned what your motivator is. You simply do good acts, good works for people. You respect their culture. You respect who they are. And then at the end of the day, if they say to you, why would you come to this God-forsaken place when you have a choice— uh, and what motivates you to do that? Can you tell me? Well, that's the opening to sell your, your, sell your uh, wares. <laughs> sell your wares. But until that happens, you don't say a word. And that's the way I think is the purest, uh, way to act is you are simply there to be of service. 
anything else that manifests from that service in regard to giving people tools or beliefs that allow them to be a better person or self-actualize, great. Uh, but unless it's asked for, you don't blackmail them into accepting. Yeah, I was that missionary guy. And like, we didn't do the blackmail thing. We loved people and waited for them to ask us why. But like, we were, we were, there was definitely the sense in which we felt like we wanted them to adopt this worldview. But that was because we thought that worldview would make their lives better. And I, and that's where you say it's, it's brainwashing from the beginning because I really, as a Christian, I didn't think it was possible to be fully authentically loving unless you were connected to my theology. And, 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 and you say, well, but what about all your encounters with really wonderful, loving people who weren't connected to your theology? And I'm like, oh, no, we were carefully cordoned off. <laughs> you know, they, they, didn't right, want, right. We didn't, they didn't want us to see people. They didn't want us to see brain surgeons who were working on altruism and compassion and weren't connected to our theology because that was, you know, that was a troubling anomaly. But I guess when I well, go ahead, no, no I was just going to say, I mean, that that's, yeah. I mean, it, you start getting a uh, cognitive dissonance. Geez. Well, how could that person be happy over there? And they're not espousing my religion. Right. right. You know, but here's the weird thing. Yeah. When I read your story, when, you know, you meet this woman, Ruth, and she teaches you, in the simplest analysis, she teaches you mindfulness and visualization techniques, like out of pure compassion for you. She's just a loving woman who wants to help this kid who's come, who's clearly coming from a rough place. And she teaches you this stuff and you get it. And it enables you to, you know, get into a college you're not, you have no business going to, and then go to a medical school you have no business going to, and then get into like a residency you have no business getting into, and then ultimately, like surviving a near-death experience, you have no business surviving. And all of that, like you end up this kind of preternatural success. But the weird thing for me about the book is like you do a great job of telling that story. But like there's this sense in which after you become hugely successful and like this cajillionaire and everything um, with your investments, you miss something. Like it seems like it all falls apart on you and you make, you make like this kind of lucrative mess of your life. And I guess what, what I didn't fully grasp and may, or maybe I just want you to talk about more is like, what did you miss that caused you to be able to take all of this good stuff and make such a mess of it? Well, the problem was that as a child, obviously you're not mature and wise, right? And uh, <clears throat> so the message that most resonated with me was because it was the one that I thought was the most important was that, geez, and this is especially in the West where we have a, a, a conspicuous consumption society where you have marketing all day long, 24-7, that says what makes you happy is if you buy something. What makes you happy is if you acquire something. What makes you happy is if you live in the big house. What makes you happy is having a lot of money in your bank account. And and fundamentally, that is success. And once, and this is what I heard as a child, yes, the opening the heart thing was wonderful, but that, frankly, is a fairly uh, high-level concept. Right? <laughs> you know, there's a difference between I'm hungry and I need food versus 
boy, it'd be great to be nice to the guy down the street and, uh, you know, go mow his lawn, right? Yeah, I I mean, when you're coming from an alcoholic father and a depressed suicidal mom and a brother that's really vulnerable, like, I guess on some level, you can get what you want is a more powerful message than you can be who you ought to be. Yeah, because you think that, well, geez, the problem really here is because we don't have enough money. Right. If we had enough money, my father wouldn't drink because he wouldn't be stressed out. If my brother wouldn't have issues because, you know, we have to share a room or we don't have enough food or he doesn't know what the future holds. Or the reason my mother's depressed is because of my father's drinking. And well, in some part, there's no doubt that's true. Having everything may not have changed anything. Uh, you know, having a, a, a stable uh, job or living in a nice house or having X, Y, or Z. And what I realized is I focused on this idea of accomplishing goals using the techniques that Ruth had taught me. And don't get me wrong, I was never a bad guy or mean or manipulative in, in terms of this issue of opening the heart. I, I, I was never not a bad or never a bad guy per se. It's just, it wasn't on the front of burner all the time. You weren't a proactively good guy. Yeah. I I mean, I was good, but yeah, I didn't sort of go out and spread this message. Uh, uh, and I never took advantage of people or stepped on somebody to get ahead, but it really wasn't either a focus of, of what I was doing anyway. What I thought was important was if I do X, Y, and Z, this means I'm a success. I will have money, which will give me control. Control means that there's no uncertainty, and therefore, money, control, I am happy. And obviously, uh, that was not the case, and it was a very naive notion, and I think it's a naive notion that many people have. And what happened was that when I, if you will, lost everything, uh, I got everything. And what I mean by that is, as I talk about in the book, you know, here I was worth tens and tens of millions of dollars. I was living in a penthouse. I was a single guy. I was driving a Ferrari. I was meeting lots of interesting people, uh, meeting lots of interesting women. And the next day I would wake up after what nominally should be this incredible experience, either out at a club with a beautiful woman or on a date with a beautiful woman or having, you know, uh, just returned from or being at some incredible place in the world, Paris, the Caribbean, wherever it was. Yet I'm waking up in the morning going, God, I hate this. I'm unhappy. And, you know, uh, waking up with somebody you barely know, uh, <clears throat> who you've met and who's attract you in some level, maybe because of your personality or your looks, but frankly, more than likely than not related to your uh, wealth. Uh, you know, you know, that person is interchangeable with a million other people and there is no true connection. Uh, and without that connection, uh, there's an emptiness and, uh, you know, I have as much money as I would ever need. Yeah. I'm sitting there most of the day going, what's next. Uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't making me feel so great. And don't get me wrong. Listen, I had, I was a neurosurgeon. I was, uh, doing very interesting things, but at its core, it was not giving me the sustenance or nourishment that my soul needed to say, geez, I'm alive. I'm happy. 
I'm connecting, I, yes. I am doing something useful in the world. It's funny, kind of like as a humanist evangelist, I oftentimes meet people in that moment and sort of try to bring them over into a different way of approaching life. And I guess what I'm wondering is like, okay, the Ruth, like I understand how you were like a kid without resources and Ruth gave you kind of the ability to take control of your life. But then, and then you come to the end of that first chapter and you're like, yeah, I have everything and I have nothing. Who taught you the second stage? Like when you came to the bottom, did you just like, oh, did you remember what she said that you hadn't really caught on to before? Or did somebody else come into your life and show you the joy of connecting? Well, I, I think what happened is that, you know, I had this sort of <laughs> come to Jesus. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> if it, uh, the universal come to Jesus. Yes. Uh, but uh, so, uh, you know, here I was, you know, financially in ruin, although, again, my worst day scenario is being a well compensated neurosurgeon, but uh, comparatively in ruin. And, uh, uh, and so what it did was it forced a reflection and a deep reflection and where I sort of went back and said, you know, how did I get here? And having gotten here, why am I unhappy? And this then went back to sort of reconstruct uh, sort of the thing that uh, began this positive trajectory forward and uh, reflected on that deeply and then realizing as I essentially relived, recreated, uh, remembered the interactions I had with Ruth and other events in my life, I realized that what I had just spent years trying to accomplish, while it was all wonderful and great and fantastic, the most important thing was to be more intentionally kind to focus on being of service and essentially just being giving. And, and when I started thinking about that deeply, that, uh, then really allowed me to take the next steps, which as you know, from the book, uh, while I was broke, I ended up giving tens of millions of dollars away because I had made some commitments and my only asset was stock in a company that had yet to go public. And when it did, it was worth millions and millions of dollars. And the nature of that giving then allowed me to connect with this self that uh, really was the self I think that most of us want to be, which is the person who really with intention on a daily basis tries to be kind and thoughtful and helpful. And suddenly the reward from that was so extraordinary and so wait, filling in terms of the reward uh, sustenance. From, the reward from giving away money? Like I, I can't imagine that, that that doesn't seem like the connection you're talking about. Well, it's not just giving away money, it's giving away money to be of service to other people. But there's a, an ever-enlarging uh, amount of neuroscience that demonstrates that when a person gives to others, their reward centers in their brain uh, actually uh, are stimulated. Right. 
And uh, so there is a big upside of giving. You know, the problem, unfortunately, that happens with people of wealth sometimes, though, is number one, they don't have the come to Jesus uh, experience that I had. So they keep they keep chasing this thing that they th- hope gives them sustenance that fills that empty void. And they keep having this experience, that experience, uh, trying to connect with this more prominent person or hanging out uh, so that they meet more prominent people who are quote unquote are like them. And that by all hanging together in their emptiness, uh, it'll all it'll all work out and make them feel full. And the thing is, they never have the experience where they go, "What's wrong here? I, I'm I'm not happy." But they never look to say, "Geez, what could really make out. it doesn't get no. bad enough." Yeah, no, it never gets bad enough. But like, like I see yeah. Donald Trump. Like you know, I just read an article in the paper today. Donald Trump, you know he's in trouble because he supposedly was gave all this money to veterans causes and they're not sure if they did. And so he then gets on the, on the TV and he starts reading off the list of people he had given organizations he gave money to. And it just feels like another way of flexing that kind of giving. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really feel like, and so I think I seem to remember you saying that like, it's not just giving that helps people. It's you've got to give for the with the right motivation in order for the brain to kind of reward you that way. No, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, this is like volunteerism. If if you're doing actions for uh, individuals to give you accolades, you're not reaping the benefit. They have to be truly selfless with no uh, motivator for self in there. Uh, and you know, Donald Trump, and I, I'm not saying anything new. The only reason he ever gives is for selfish reasons, either yeah, to narcissist. promote himself. Yeah. yeah, of course he is, and, and you know, there's no denying that. And and you know, as an example, he, there was a story where supposedly he created a park uh, uh, with his name on it, of course, uh, in exchange for uh, approval of a uh, some sort of real estate a project. Yeah, and then somebody goes to the park and it's completely run over with weeds. You can't even go through it. Basically, uh, um, you know, it's a disaster. Well, he didn't, and, and he was supposed to theoretically provide services to keep it up and do this or that. He had no interest in building that park. This was a transaction, right? And it wasn't, geez, you know, if I build this park and help people, uh, you know, that'll benefit people. And I don't need anything. I'm just going to do it. You know, and, uh, and, and, and you know what, what? I mean, it's funny, like swinging over to neuroscience, like this is what's confusing me right now. It's like, I don't know whether to be mad at Donald Trump or not, because the more I read about brain development, I just got finished reading this book called We Are Our Brains by, uh-huh. by D.F. Schwab. And, and as I was reading it, like he basically sort of is, is saying, hey, genetics and in utero development determine so much like before you're even born the stress that your mom's under the food that you're given all that stuff determines not just your gender and your sexuality but your level of aggression your level of of anxiety your your proneness to depression and and so when i i'm reading that book over here on the one hand and on the other hand i'm listening to you in your lectures talk about neuroplasticity and i guess what i'm wondering is like how much of our identities and our, our desire to give and the amount of pleasure that we get from giving, how much of that is kind of wired in and how much of that is malleable and, and that we can actually take somebody 
and if we give them the right kind of training or, or opportunities, we can change, we can make them more compassionate. We can make them more loving. Well, uh, as an example, we know that you can actually pass certain types of genes through generations based on life stresses uh, that one has experienced. And on some level, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's predetermined. Uh, that being said, it's not everything, and it may not even be a majority. And as an example, if you have a predisposition to a certain type of behavior, well, if you create an environment where those genes never have to be expressed, or there's a more powerful set that are of a positive nature, then that uh, sort of genetic potential never happens or, or it's never reached, right? And uh, uh, so I think that, yes, uh, a lot of stuff is predetermined, or at least it's like uh, a future, you know, part of the future may be laid out there and is more likely to happen if not, but uh, the future could be changed. It may not be 100% different. It could be only 50%. But uh, so, so it's kind of like you're surfing in the sense of you're going to go with this wave, but you can steer a little bit within that. Within that, You have some – there's some freedom or some – possibility, even though a lot of things yeah. are set. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, it, it uh, you know, you can decide if you're going to, uh, you know, uh, take the wave and you, you push it too far and you, you wipe out yeah, yeah. <laughs> or uh, you don't. And uh, well, like, I think, like, like yeah. a, just a, a stark example is we're so vicious to pedophiles in our society. Like it is such a, oh, you like children. That's so evil. And yet what I'm what I'm getting the sense of is that pedophilia is kind of wired into you from birth, like not whether you act on it. In fact, 90 percent of pedophiles never abuse anybody. But like the desire, the, the, the sexual attraction to children, that's not a choice. I, I mean, uh, there's no question that the vast majority of people have these feelings, some of which are extraordinarily dark and which uh, they recognize. It's just the nature of of our humanity. It's just like the vast majority of men and women at some point have uh, attraction to same sex, but that's just the nature of who we are. Uh, and the thing is, when you repress these feelings or you never face them and you act like they don't exist, and especially as uh, we were talking about earlier, there are certain religions, uh, as an example, evangelical Christianity, which, or uh, Islam, you know, they repress all these sorts of feelings that, frankly, are common feelings. I mean, a significant population, both in uh, our species and all species, are uh, uh, homosexual. And... Uh, it's when you repress things and you don't let people be authentic or sort of at least be able to process them openly and have a conversation, then it goes down deep and dark and then they act out in other ways. This is why, you know, how many stories do we have to see of quote unquote uh, family values people 
uh, who, you know, end up are going to gay bars or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, engaging prostitutes uh, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah, of course, of course. And yes, those things exist. And that's just the way it is. And, 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 and what's interesting to me is, you know, the, as I think about the pedophilia thing, I think if we, if we really understand the neuroscience here, we can't allow you to act out, but we shouldn't have any kind of moral, like that desire. Oh, that must be really hard for you. So sorry. Yeah. We're not going to punish and- you. We're, we, we may, we may hold you back or we may restrain you, but we're not going to, we're not going to be angry or punish you as a society for something over which you have no control. Yeah. And this is this thing of like, you know, shaming people and making them feel disgusted with themselves is not helpful. All it does is make them go into the darkness and act out. And, uh, yeah. You but know, then it's let like, me bring it around to neuroplasticity because you're somebody who I've, I, I mean, I've heard you talk about how there are, there are, parts of our brain maybe not the whole basic framework but there are parts of our brain that can literally be rewired or reshaped i mean and you've seen this in physicality right you like people's brains actually change in shapes and sizes yeah there's no question about that and you know obviously this was my own experience and i look at the experience of meditators whether they be philosophical religious ones like buddhism or certain types of christian or uh, Sufi practices or a variety of others or, yes, secular, you know, or even secular ones like, or, or secular. Yeah, exactly. You know, we know that there are individuals who can, as an example, uh, uh, uh with, uh, intentionality or on a conscious level, change their heart rate, change their body temperature, um, manifest all sorts of things. And, uh, it is within our power to do that, but it takes a lot of training as an, as an example, to show you some takes zero training that it happens at a subconscious level, but to show you the power of this is we know that a large percentage of people, if you give them a sugar pill and tell them it's going to have some action, it in fact does. How is that even possible? Right? Yeah. Yeah. The placebo and yeah. And so we know we have this incredible capacity uh, mentally to change our physiology and it's just how do you access that and control it? Now, that being said, getting back to the other issues we were talking about, uh, one of the challenges of each of us is to recognize that we have this dark side, uh, that we're human, and it's okay, uh, because <laughs> that's just the way it is. And, uh, well, and in, a weird uh, way, in a weird way, like it's probably the way it's supposed to be. Like I, I read this book uh, about spiritual evolution, like the idea that we are, ev- are evolving into a more compassionate and kinder species and that, that all these spiritual values naturally select. And I'm thinking like, yeah, they do within your tribe, but then like there's also competition on some level. Our aggression serves us, doesn't it? Well, look, uh, uh, yes. The, the problem is though that, you know, evolution is incremental and not perfect and is very, very slow. And the challenges that we face in modern society are moving exponentially uh, at a pace that our evolution cannot keep up with. So in some ways, we have a certain amount of baggage that has stayed with us. Remember, our our DNA has not significantly changed in the last 200,000 years, right? 
So this is before any civilization. It's it's when you were basically living as hunter-gatherers uh, on the savanna in Africa or elsewhere. and uh, With a handful so, of people that you trusted and everybody else yeah, you wanted to kill. Yeah, yeah, and that's the same situation. And whether it was a different tribe or a different group of humans who were fighting for either limited resources or, uh, or you're in a hostile environment, yeah, I mean, you had to sort of trust your tribe, pick that tribe. They look like you. They act like you. You've been with them your entire life. And that's why, uh, you know, people feel the sense of calmness and connection when they're with people who they self-determine uh, uh, as their tribe, whether it's based on a religious grounds, color, uh, ethnicity, culture, whatever it is, and because you just feel most comfortable there. And as soon as you feel that comfort, you're, you decrease the input from your sympathetic nervous system and increase the input uh, to your parasympathetic nervous system, which results in you feeling this sense of calmness, affiliative behavior, relaxation, connection, closeness, your sphincters loosen, your, your digestive juices increase, and uh, you're relaxed. And that's the nature of our species. And that's why also what we had uh, from our early evolution, uh, uh, this deep connection to our offspring, because our offspring require us to care for them for 15 years to 20 years, the, and it, it, it entails an immense amount of resource expenditure, energy expenditure. And, and the reason is, is because we have to teach them uh, and it involves engagement. It involves connection. Plus, we have to recognize when they're suffering or need us. And we have these inherently hardwired uh, pathways that allow us to read facial expression, body movement, smell, uh, all sorts of things that tell us when another who we are connected to is suffering or need us. And this is the same as true when we evolve to the hunter-gatherer tribes. You had to be able to sense if somebody was not uh, uh, functioning well uh, because they put the group at risk. Uh, remember, our primary survival strategy until six to 8,000 years ago was groups of 10 to 50. Uh, so in a hostile environment, if one person failed to do their job, it put everybody at risk. So you had to recognize when they were suffering and, and be highly motivated to alleviate that suffering. Uh, and so we have these inherent capabilities, but the problem is we also have- They're not well-suited for are the brains that we have that were really well-suited for the Savannah. They're not well-suited for New York City, and they're not well-suited well, for a world in which you can fly to Japan. Exactly. And so you- what we keep trying to do is we try to, you know, uh, <clears throat> function at a high level with a device that is, uh, you know, it's like we're we're working with the Motorola Razor phone or <laughs> right. in a uh, uh, iPhone six world, <laughs> and it's not it doesn't work that well, and you have to then deal with the deficiencies. And, and have an awareness of those deficiencies and try to create workarounds See, as an example. And, and, what, and what's funny is like, I'm a collapsarian. Like I believe that our present social order is soon to collapse, that our economy is unsustainable, that our environmental practices are unsustainable, that like I'm predicting at some point in the next 50 years, 
a real correction here and not and not a happy one. And and a lot of the work that I do is in trying to reconnect people with the idea of being part of a tribe and learning how, not not being a part of a tribe that attacks other tribes, but being a part of a tribe that says I know how to resolve conflict with these people. I know how to grow food with these people. I know how to care for these people and and take responsibility for them in a way that Western society doesn't seem to to be training people to do, to be good members of tribes. But like, that's all because I think a bad time is coming. You, when I listen to you, you seem, in spite of your knowledge of our, our Motorola brain's unsuitability for our iPhone world, you seem optimistic. Well... <clears throat> Let me. And I don't get uh, that. I, I, I honestly, <laughs> honestly, like I get all the love stuff. I believe in everything about the love and how we're wired and what, what the, the best form of life. And I want to do that. But like, I don't think that's going to save us from this collapse, but you seem to. Well, uh, I, I have no choice, right? I, I mean, either you could. No, using... you do have a choice. No, you let can me join finish. me. <laughs> but let me finish. Uh, so I believe that there was always a reason for optimism. Look, you're correct. I, I mean, whether it is uh, a crisis that humans create, which is in all likelihood going to be the case, where we destroy ourselves, or a crisis as a result of organisms on Earth, which are not friendly to humans, not by intention, but by accident, or uh, a external event, such as a meteor, uh, <clears throat> all of those could end humanity. Uh, and you're right, it could be within the next century or less. Uh, all of that being said, though, first I don't, of all- I don't think it's going to end us. I think it's just going to like it's going to wipe out a lot of us. And the, and the, and the only ones that are going to survive are the ones that have learned the deeper wisdom of love and compassion. Well, there I might argue differently with you. So let's take these different scenarios. One is obviously if it's a virus or a bacteria or a meteorite and we have no capacity to defend ourselves, it could kill everyone. Let's say, though, one of these events occurs <clears throat> or an event occurs that destroys a large percent of our population in the world. I'm sorry for this. Like, like the pandemic flu that has recently come to you and is killing you even as we speak. Exactly. I'll be cutting off here shortly. <laughs> uh, let's say there is a, a much smaller group of people in the world. You know, hopefully a couple things would happen. Number one, uh, there would be a global sense that what has created this uh, calamity or disaster is acting in a non-sustainable way. A and global would, come to Jesus moment. Exactly, exactly. So, and then as a result, you realize that borders, you realize that, you know, expending huge sums of money on the military is simply to the disadvantage of everyone. And what does it create? All it creates is other hostilities fighting for limited resources versus taking those resources and directing them to help everybody. Now, this isn't to say that everyone's going to live in a first world environment. And frankly, I don't think that's necessarily helpful. But if you create an environment where 
you know, people have what's necessary. And there's a different worldview, a non-capitalist worldview, and I'm not saying necessarily a pure socialist view, but not one in which a few people take all the resources and use those against others or create uh, situations where uh, it creates war, then, you know, yes, I believe it is possible. But the other side of the coin is if humanity does not survive, that's okay too. There is a likelihood that our species will not survive. We are under a delusion that there is, it's like exceptionalism in the U.S., like we're under a delusion that America is different and that we are exceptional and that God has granted this exceptionality that makes us pure and better than the rest of the world. And of course, this is a complete delusion. We have been graced. And you think human beings as a whole, like we may be under a human exceptionalism, like we must survive. Yeah, uh, who, yeah, exactly. We are not Why? dodo birds after all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But what makes us special? Again, we're not special because we're special. We're special because a fluke of evolution created a species that has some degree of self-awareness. Uh, uh, but that doesn't make us special. And in fact, some would argue that we're even more deluded uh, because of this fact that we think we're special and that we have some place in a hierarchy uh, which doesn't exist. I mean, what makes us better than a dolphin or an elephant? No, what's funny is like, I, I hear you. When I, when I was a believer, I really did see an infinite qualitative distinction between human beings and every other form of life. And now I see that like we're just part of the continuum. Um, and, and I get that, but I, I have to tell you that in the same way that I think cockroaches are loyal to other loyal to the cockroach DNA moving forward, I'm lo- I'm a loyal human being. I don't necessarily think that we're guaranteed to go on, but I have a deep interest in us going on. Even you say like who cares? And the reason I care is because I have loved being alive so much. I have loved falling in love and eating food and having sex and raising children and all of these beautiful things that the thought of another human being doing that a thousand years from now and experiencing these things, even though I know I won't be there, that thought makes me happy now. And so in a weird way, projecting into the future enhances my present. And I'm willing to make sacrifices for that future because it makes me happy. But you could just as easily argue, I think, as an example, when you know you drive along and you see, uh, you look at a, a mountain that has been completely denuded of trees, you look at a stream that has dead fish floating in it. You look at, you know, the collapse of certain types of uh, environments, you know, the toxic waste that spread everywhere. And essentially, as you're probably aware, a large number of species have become extinct and, uh, and more will. Uh, and you could sit there and argue what would be better than seeing a world in which, let's say, you know, hundreds of thousands of years from now, the the mountains are filled with trees. You have all of these organisms that really are living their evolution that allows them to be in a certain environment and allows the whole system to work in a integrated way. Uh, and uh, humans are not involved at all because they're the ones who've uh, 
no more, no longer participate in evolution. But like <laughs> right? now, now you're doing human exceptionalism because I go like the, in that beautiful future world that you just described, the reason those plants are there is because like something in their core DNA keeps propagating. The reason the, the, the mice and the deer and whatever animals are frolicking are there are because they are all like instinctually committed to pro to, to, to projecting themselves into the future. So like, why should it, it won't well, be a beautiful uh, world if humans don't at least have that same, like that urge is wired into me. No, well, now see, I think we're, we're we're different. You're ascribing this to a consciousness uh, that you're saying, well, they're they have a desire to have a future. No, well, I'm just frankly, saying it's instinctual. They, they just do that. It is instinctual. Yes, it's instinctual they, they, in me too. Yes, but again, if you do an analysis of uh, statistical analysis of what is more likely than not, based on past behavior of our species you would have great concern that we are going to completely destroy ourselves. That being said, what I'm saying is, though, that before humans had uh, self-awareness and consciousness, which we, of course, ascribe as the highest uh, aspiration of a species, uh, things actually went pretty well until that happened. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, it's funny. Okay, I thought you were optimistic. You're not. Um, I am. I am because even though I predict, we reverse the roles. Yeah, even though I predict like apocalyptic suffering, I still believe that love will emerge on the other side of it, and I do think that like love is the highest achievement of life, and and I'm more optimistic about that surviving. It sounds like than you are, even though you see, you see it at work all over the world. Well, what I would say to you is, it's not so much that I'm, I have no attachment. Right. I agree with you that love is probably one of the most powerful things in the universe. I I agree with that. I agree that care, concern, kindness are extraordinarily important and absolutely critical if our species is to survive. But at the end of the day, I have no attachment because with attachment is desire, with attachment is, is, uh, having emotional connection to things, oftentimes with which I have no control. As an example, it's like sitting all day long uh, saying, geez, life sucks because we've killed all these species and they're, you know, uh, the landscape is not what it was a thousand years ago. Uh, I try to sit in the real world and to be present and and then that's the only world that I know for sure, right? Because other than this moment, uh, we have nothing. You know, as you and I are talking, there could be a massive meteorite fly through here and kill both of us or all of us. And I have no control over that. All I'm saying is the only thing I know for sure is that you and I are together at this moment. In the context of this moment, by giving unconditional love, that creates the best moment that is humanly possible. And being present to either give or receive that love is an extraordinary blessing that essentially is the pinnacle of our species. But that is the moment that I have now. I don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. I would like to believe that love will persevere. I would like to believe that 
all of the positive things that we're saying will result in a world which is an incredible place for our children uh, and for everyone. But we have to temper this with what our past experience has been and also <clears throat> understand that many of these things we don't have control over. So why have anxiety and concern? <clears throat> All you can do is function in this moment to be the best that you can be in this moment. And I guess, and I guess the weird thing for me is, you know, I remember when I was raising my, my son, he, and my daughter especially, she had this blanket that was of supreme importance to her. And if we forgot it on a trip, she would be, have a hard time sleeping and things, you know, the name was a blanket was Adi and uh, it was an old rag by the end of the, by the end of the, the, the day, but, but, but it was, it mattered to her. And the weird thing is, is that that rag had no real value, but there were times when it mattered deeply to me, a grown human being who knew it had no value when I would have given a thousand dollars to have it. Not because it mattered to me, but because it mattered to her and she mattered to me. And I guess that's the weird thing. Like, that's why I am attached to the future because I'm attached to my wife and she cares about our daughter and our daughter cares about her little girl. And it, 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 I feel like the daisy chain of love makes me care about what comes next. Well, <clears throat> yes. I mean, I didn't say I didn't care it's I recognize I don't necessarily have control of it. <clears throat> you know, right. I have Neither do three I. children, right? And, and I have great uh, love and, and, and concern. But at the end of the day, I cannot control their future. In fact, I can't control their decision-making, right? They make decisions which I may disagree with. Damn it. And, uh, <laughs> exactly. And it is what it is. All we can do, again, is be present for that moment or this moment and try to be as loving, caring as possible and hope that that in and of itself has an influence on the next moment. And beyond that, uh, I can't do anything more. All right. I need to let you go. And, and I'm going to let you, do. you go. I just want to ask. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. That's, that's, that's a loving and compassionate thing to do. I'm going I'm to ask you one thing just for yourself, though. Like, what are you working on now? Like, what are you? I'm your friend. You've done all the study of compassion and love and altruism. I try to communicate love out to my podcast world. Do you feel like as a neuroscientist, can you communicate love via Skype? Absolutely. Okay. Sure. You think you can. Okay, good. Yeah. That makes me feel better. Like, we've been doing it for the last time. <laughs> well, I, I, and so my question to you is like, what are you working on now? Or what are you thinking about now? Who, who have you met recently? What are you most excited about in your life right now? After talking to you, I'm completely depressed. I oh, don't even think I'm. <laughs> I'm actually doing some wonderful things. I'm working on an app based on the alphabet of the heart, which is uh, fun. And then I uh, am actually uh, organizing the next Science of Compassion conference. And I'm also working on an Institute of Compassionate Healthcare. And I'm going to go operate on something in an hour or so. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to let you go, but I, I just want to tell you, as I so appreciate you're taking the time to talk with me. And I, I just want to, every time I talk to you, I will always say one last thing to you. And the one last thing I will say is like, I love all this work on compassion. I'm convinced that the incubator for compassion is always those little tribes that you were talking about where people are comfortable when you're. When you're teaching people compassion and altruism, 
I always, I always think like we have to teach people in cohorts rather than as individuals, because I'm convinced it is like my hope is the cohort. Well, I think, and what I try to end a lot of the conversations I have with is also the reality that because so many people say I'm only, there's only one of me and I, I, I don't have this or I don't have that, but what every one of us has is what we were just talking about, which is love and kindness and the ability to be kind. And each of us has within our capacity every day, the ability to make one person's life better. And if you're able to do that every day, then you are doing the right thing and you are fulfilling the purpose for which you are here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that be the end, man. Okay, dude. <laughs> Take care. Bless you. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. You. Okay. Bye. bye. All right. So that was my conversation with Jim Doty. I loved getting to know him. It's funny. When I met him at USC, he gave me a hug goodbye. That was one of the top three hugs I've ever gotten in my life. Um, the guy is, is just a very special human being. And uh, again, go to the website, barcampola.org and get the info on the book. I think you'll like it. Um, you know, you get it out of the library, you buy it, however you do your book thing. Um, but uh, it, it's not just a story. It's also kind of a how-to um, become more mindful yourself. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for being in the conversation. I'll catch you next time. For more information about the work of Bar Campolo, please visit barcampolo.org.